This is a podcast from meow.net. Meow! Common Practice, a monthly podcast about the things people do. Things to do with creativity, collaboration, cultural democracy, and the commons. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Common Practice. My name's Owen Kelly, and I'm here today talking to Dushita Dražić and Helga Bart from WP Zimmer in Antwerp. So the first thing I'd like to ask you two to do is explain what WP Zimmer is. I know it's had a long and complex history, so perhaps you could explain how it started and some of it, the key points on its journey. I think the first, um, WP Zimmer started as a festival for dance in Antwerp, and it was really linked to the, to the wave of dance in the 80s in Belgium. But then Antwerp wasn't really the epicenter of it. It really moved to Brussels. So at a certain point, um, the necessity of a festival of dance started to uh, shift into another need, as a need for spaces for creation and, and spaces for production and rehearsal. So with the Zimmer shifted into a space for production, basically, and, and support of artists, and they dropped the presentation of work. And then over the past 20 years, it has been existing and shape-shifting in the space for development and research. And with the new artistic management that started in 2020, we really uh, wanted to reinforce this position of uh, research and, um, and, and development and even let go the notion of production a bit or at least um, highlight it's in a different way, like not in, in creating products that would then tour or play in the market of uh, the arts world. And I think actually the basic um, the basic characteristic of Epizimmer is that it always comes from an observation of needs for the arts field and an observation of what could be potential ways for new ways of uh, working and creating within the arts. Okay, I'll just add that that's... This is Helga talking at the moment. And uh, how did you come to WP Zimmer, Helga? Well, I was an intern in 2004, and I was uh, very inspired by this space as it offered a very, like it offered a sort of different position within the arts field. So it stayed with me, and I continued my professional journey elsewhere. Uh, but I think the notion of working with young and, and um, experimental artists stayed. And after another journey came to end, um, I was asked by the director of Epizimmer to join Epizimmer. And it sort of um, went very fast from, from then onwards. Um, I was very inspired by uh, Karim Mulders, but Karim decided to leave the moment I arrived. So it was, uh, it was a takeover, although I didn't really expect it would be. Okay, Dushita, how did you first come into contact with the organization? Actually, through collaborations with uh, artists that were involved in Webesimmer. So, uh, when I moved to Antwerp in 2013, it was really a long adjustment, I have to admit, uh, to a new city and uh, for me a new position because I 
never planned to leave Belgrade, where I'm from. And I was very naive, uh, I think, looking from this position, really honestly believing in a possibility of being a transnational citizen, which completely failed once, uh, <laughs> once I changed the states, <laughs> actually. And uh, I collaborated with Hossi Verblusen, who also in long time in Belgrade, and not even sure if she was even then the trajectory artist of Vete Zimmer. But then again, I started uh, my own space with Wim uh, Janssen, Out of Sight, where we had the first collaboration. Uh, but then I was not really, like, we didn't meet each other. I didn't know the organization. It was very administrative way of collaborating with, with it in that way. And then we again crossed paths uh, during the festival, the, the image generator uh, that was organized by a few organizations, the cultural spaces in Antwerp. And then there was an open call. We still then kind of had these very unofficial, official meetings for preparation of that festival. And then there was an open call uh, for the position of a producer that I applied for. And I was really surprised I, <laughs> because I had a lot of, uh, like for me personally, maybe also to put it in a context, I was applying for a lot of positions, but I never got it. I was always, I always felt I was being, uh, maybe used for these statistics of having a strange name, you know, coming from a place that it's not necessarily seen as a, like, is hegemonic or doesn't have this position. Um, and for me, this was really personally a decision that it's the last job application I will do in Antwerp. Um, and if it doesn't work, I just like, refuse to, <laughs> to go into further <laughs> job seeking. And then, uh, yeah, uh, since 2020, uh, I, I'm involved with this image as a producer, and then sometimes uh, I infiltrate myself with the artistic proposals. So you are both working as producers, is that correct? I think my job description is direction, and I think it's, uh, it's called direction because it could also be the opposite direction. We decided to deconstruct a bit these ideas of, of fixed position and the hierarchy in organizations, so we, form, we formulated a collective uh, management, so the three in artistic management. Um, everybody in the team has its function, which means its responsibilities, but everybody can take up different roles. Like when Lucia says that she's infiltrating, it's actually also a possibility that is offered by the organization and the organizational structure. So there is not such a thing as your, I don't know, to say something, you're the, com the communication manager, so you don't have an artistic opinion. That's not our case. The, communi the communication manager can actually also propose an artistic um, project, for instance. So everybody has, let's say, their end responsibilities, but also can take up other functions within the space. And we're all quite involved. We're all very aware of what is the mission and the vision of the space. So we function um rather horizontal in that sense. I find this very interesting because Pixelake, uh, of which I'm a member, has also uh, attempted to do this, attempted several times to move from a traditional structure to a structure in which people are defining their own roles and which is more or less horizontal. And it's not been entirely friction-free. 
because there's been a tension between the ongoing mission of the organization and the desire to reinterpret it as it goes along. Have you also had some kind of conflict, any kind of conflict along those lines? Definitely. I don't think it's friction-free at all. Um, I think a big sort of premise of, of making this work is, is trust. And I would even say radical trust in the sense that you really have to uh, believe that all and everybody is involved in the same mission and sort of understands and interprets things um, along acceptable lines. And I say acceptable lines or parallel lines, but not divergent lines. And that's a bit, that's hard because it's not necessarily given that everybody understands the mission statement in the same way or has the same interpretation or the same value set to, um, to balance it with. So we do encounter um, misunderstandings or we, we have a lot of discussions about what exactly it means to work in this specific way. Although I think there is a quite strong base that we, that we also really worked on quite hard to establish, like what is um, the basic mission, I think we sort of all understand and share, I believe. And from that, there is a lot of differences, which we also embrace in a way. But it doesn't go without, um, yeah, tension. Okay, then I have I have two obvious follow up questions for this, at least obvious in my head. The first one's a very simple one: How big is the team? How We're eight, eight people. people? And the second one, which is probably more complicated, you were talking about uh, an agreement around the mission. So, how would you describe Vepo Zimmer's mission? Oh, there is many definitions for it. That's a, it's a very hard one. I think we define ourselves as an antidisciplinary house and a house working on research and development and sort of letting go of traditional power structures within the arts and within society as we observe it. And I think we embraced transformation as an ongoing reality for us all. These are the elements of the mission statement. We have a very elegant and eloquently formulated text, but it, it becomes very... I mean, it's so smooth and slick in a way that you lose um, the hard work that is behind it. It sounds very good, but it needs the books, I think. Okay, that's the one you use for funding agencies, is it? The smooth one? Yes, obviously. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, that seems to be very sensible. I mean, you, have to, you do have to describe yourself in some contexts as though your very existence wasn't problematic. So I think that the need for a smooth statement is probably is probably realistic, but as you say, the the the, the wrapping disguises the the sometimes thorny nature of the what's inside it. Yeah, but maybe also it's really a constantly renegotiation your own positions within it, but also your relation to each other, which is not always what Helga said uh, like a smooth process because we also have so many different backgrounds and like multiplexities of like our individual selves that we bring in uh, and also a set of beliefs I would also think or like very political positions that we all embody I think this is also what I sensed uh, or like realized we all really think consciously about uh, like politics of production also 
as like artists, as curators, as producers, as institutions, and also maybe look some kind of uh, uh, modes of uh, yeah, what, what you said, like uh, of dissent that we can do as an institution and while working in institution, how we can. I don't know if you agree with that or not, but. At least this is how I perceive it. <laughs> how would you describe your politics of production? I ask this because obviously the one of the key factors behind this series of podcasts is the idea of cultural democracy, which people mm-hmm. come to in many different ways and have many different feelings about. So what? how would you describe your politics of production? What do you think informs them and how do they realize themselves in practical work there is a sort of first degree i would say we work with a lot of young artists or very experimental practices that come from different backgrounds and a lot of young people or a lot of people that sort of only sort of embark in their artistic trajectories are unaware of how uh, the political situation or their actual economic realities are informing their work so we really try to open all what we do in a lot of transparency. So we try to really make them aware of how, for instance, uh, a communication text or how a choice to divide your budget in this and this way or what a funding application means in a political way and how it informs the work. So how this is not neutral actions, how the choice of working with certain partners, how the choice of engaging in certain, I don't know, fun- with certain funding bodies is informing their work and is actually uh, 100% part of their artistic processes, which they sort of detach themselves from. So there is a lot of, like, work. we call it working together, like really working with them in making them understand what these choices mean. So that's one level of, of work that we do. And then there is a lot of work that that is also for us politics of production or that fits under that umbrella that is much less direct, I would say. It's in artistic proposals or it's in artistic collaborations or it's in relationships and and ongoing discussions and platforms we engage in. It's our personal researches as well that we also sort of connect, disconnect with the space. It's all of our, all of our multiple identities that live here. I can speak for myself. My research is, is a lot about collectivity and the in or possibility of, of collectivity in, in, let's say, late capitalist or neoliberal societies which is an interesting research by time. Um, and it also really informs how we work in the museum, like the whole experiment of being many and trying to be many and trying to be not only many in the organizational and governance structure, but also in the artistic practices, is very much informed by my personal work. For me, it's, I also think of collectivity a lot, but uh, maybe from a different angle, like more in a way how uh, collective self can be formed through, uh, let's say, different self-states, not in the sense of, uh, but then also how all this relates to a state structure. So for me, I'm really interested in different ideologies and how different ideologies can be formed and... uh, uh, also in my own artistic practice, I kind of always search for this uh, 
uh, let's say temporary utopian structures that existed or can be thought through. And I know you were sometimes someone told you that you are optimist nihilist. Was no. it you? Or somebody it? told me I'm a nihilist, but actually I said I'm an optimist. Yeah. <laughs> like that. Yeah. Yeah. But I can actually relate to it. <laughs> completely so i can also uh, <laughs> yeah and i think it's important to add on that that for instance for uh Wilson, somebody of the artistic team of Wilson as well for her um a big struggle in this politics of production or, or in this uh, um or within the organization is repositioning the artist within the whole notion of of organizational structures Mm. Um, and for her, for her, this is a very political statement to really, as an artist, hold a position as, as an artistic director. And for her, it's a, there is a whole uh, negotiation happening of what it means to, to have, well, actually she's using her artistic practice as the director or her artistic practice is directing the space. So there is a lot of these notions as well, free balancing in that sense. And for another collaborator, it's, it's very much also about which voices are not heard. Um, she is um, actually a second, no, first generation um, immigrant of Morocco. Um, and she feels that certain, certain you know, narratives are just not finding their place within the arts field. So she's also working on that. So there is a lot of uh, layers happening here. How do the politics of production collide with the politics of consumption, as far as you're concerned? The only way that we manage is is uh, by insisting on informality, and that's um, it. Be, it was first it came from a necessity because it, we didn't really manage to translate it differently, but now it really became a choice, a deliberate choice to use informality as a tool to match both. So there is a big need of also sharing and, um, I don't know, encountering people through the research or the work and artistic practices that are happening here. But we decided not to translate them into um, formal, recognizable products, but to invite, uh, on an informal way, a community of people. So that's what we're trying to build, this practice community. Okay, well, that leads us neatly on then, I suppose, to what the actual program of the organization is. What does, what does, how do you say it? VP Zimmer? WP Zimmer? How do you actually, you say the organization name? In, in English, we would say WP Zimmer. In, in Flemish, you would say VP uh, Zimmer, which, which is Werkplatz, workspace. Werkplatz is a workspace. Okay. Okay, that makes works. Okay, that makes perfect sense. So, what sort of program do you engage in, or have you engaged in since uh, since the pandemic? And did the pandemic make a difference to you in in a, in a permanent way? Yeah. <laughs> I mean. I don't know for me if it made it different. I only worked during the <laughs> during pandemic. I started when pandemic was so yeah. I mean now yeah, I don't know if we can say we are out of pandemic, but let's say we are now for me it's becoming different. 
I don't know if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, I didn't experience working with the semen outside of pandemic. So for me, that that's just a normality. But for you, it's uh, it's different, actually. Strangely enough, I think, in a way, we were safeguarded from a lot of bad effects from the pandemic because we've always stayed open. Because in Belgium, we were allowed to continue working um, if it was professional bubbles. So there were professional bubbles working in the space. We kept the continuance and activity, of course, with very different conditions. And uh, we were not allowed to be here. So artists were working here, but we had no idea what was actually happening in the space. But I think it reinforced certain tendencies that were already there and it made us, it gave us a lot of time to actually reflect on the new mission and new ways of implementing it um, in the world. So I think we had two years of thinking and talking and no uh, deadlines attached to them. So that was quite helpful um, to invent all sorts of new ways. And the fact that the market Stopped. So there was no touring, there was no shows, there was no uh, pressure to participate in all sorts of public programs, made it easier to make certain cuts, I think. Because Vipi Zimmer before was um, producing and trying to sell works and trying to tour certain creations. And I think this pressure um, stopped for two years and I think it was easier to really also let go of that. That's maybe... Um, something quite beneficial that came out. But it doesn't mean that we are not, that our works and our artists that we support are not present. They are, but maybe in different ways. Maybe we found different possibilities of sharing or opening work to to the outside world. Um, yeah. That's probably enhanced by COVID. But then, if I understand you correctly, you're saying that uh, the pandemic effectively gave you a space to transform the organization or to not necessarily rethink, but to focus more clearly on what you were wanting to do. Is that correct? I think so. I think this transformation would have anyway happened. It was, well, it was already sort of we embarked already on this mission of transformation. But the fact that activities were paused gave us a lot of time to really invest into reflecting and talking and talking over again without it immediately having to become reality. And it's the moment that it became reality that we realized, like, oh, what the hell did we actually think about? What what were our ideas? So we, we had to adjust then afterwards. But there was a lot of basis and already a lot of thinking that was done beforehand. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. Actually, uh, I, this is what I feel like this, ta- this period now, it really starts to be a moment when you kind of test what you have been thinking past two years and again, kind of reflect and readjust. And we still have time somehow by doing to be critical towards what we were thinking. <laughs> I don't know if that makes sense. Kind of. Yeah, that makes, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. Yes. Okay, so then let us look at what your current program is. What are what are you currently engaged in as a as a collective? No, we started actually. We started with the third edition of uh, a whole series of Topoi. It's Topos Free uh, on mobilization. 
Uh, and we last week we were joined by artists uh, Siniša Ilić, Zorka Volny, uh, Ahilan Ratnamohan, and the agency of Singular Investigations. And this whole program was also shaped together with uh, Bach Baltic Art Center and Helena Selder, who is artistic director. So we have been working on this since the last year. And uh, it was maybe very naive, and uh, we were really thinking of uh, this concept of mobilization, being aware that it comes like uh, from a military, like a military language, but uh, also looking at uh, social mobilization and the strategies that are shared and tools that are shared, but then really trying to see it from this very pacifistic position. Uh, but then, of course, the whole approach shifted uh, once a new war actually uh, started between Ukraine, Russia, Russia. Well, it's in East North Europe. Let's say it like that. Um, so it really made us rethink uh, um, how to relate to this terminology uh, a lot. And in some way, the whole process and the evening schools that we started through through this model also relate to that. So we re- I realized that it went a lot into language and how we actually relate to certain terms and how we understand them and how we apply them to artistic but also daily life um, yeah so how long will this topos last what is the program inside the topos yeah uh it's it had a very strange start like it was also thought as a collect maybe it's also good to to give an information on topoi and also the whole structure of how we thought of the whole series to understand maybe how Topos is then positioned. Um, do you, I don't know if that's yes, fine. Yes, that would be interesting, yes. In this series of, of the Topoi, we're informed by many notions, and I think it's a translation of several desires into, into one sort of proposition. Um, I think on the one hand, there was this idea that artistic knowledge and, and artistic practices are too atomized and that there is actually something that is shared in between all of those uh, researches and practices. And we wanted to create um, a space where a safe space probably, or, or a space at least where there was no competition in between those practices, where they could just exchange and learn from each other and new knowledges could be made as a sort of very naive proposition of, of let's see what happens if we do that. And then within the pandemic, but actually also just because of the reality where we are based, we, we saw this need to link artistic research and certain practices that reflect about the, the transformation of the world, let's say, to, to say it very broad and general, with what was actually going on outside, because we are based in a neighborhood where a lot of newcomers arrive. We have 90 nationalities and spoken languages in a very small area. So it's an extremely diverse, problematic um, constellation of people, but also quite beautiful. So we also wanted to relate to that, like what can these artistic practices that talk all the time about transformation and a better future and a more sustainable tomorrow, what can they actually mean for 
these people outside. So we had this <laughs> big gap in between those, um, let's say, artistic and knowledges and, and the realities. But then with that, uh, a lot of propositions came and a lot of new practices uh, came um, on our radar to actually bridge and inform and to have a sort of connection between those two realities. So the first topos was um, in really in, in the high days of the pandemic. So we really couldn't do what we wanted to do. We talked about failure, personal failure as a, as a space of creativity. Um, but the second one was maybe more uh, what we actually wanted to do with this, with this Popoy series, and it was called How to Be Together. So the exercise was, or let's say um, the invitation was, is, is like really like how can we be together as a group of artists, as an institution with artists, but also as a group of artists with the neighborhood, as an institution with the neighborhood. So we experimented all sorts of different relationships um, one more successful than the other, we have to admit. Um, and I think from this reflection came this notion of, of mobilization, um, more in a civic sense, in, mm. in the way of like emancipatory processes, those voices that we don't hear, those voices that might not be seen as the, the canon of knowledge, um, how to give them a place, how to um maybe reinforce certain voices by what we do or give them tools or or a microphone um that was one entry point i think also for what we are now doing in in uh, topos 3 yeah and somehow in these talks we also came to this uh, uh different forms of evening schools and what they represent in each of our contexts because we realized uh, that the understanding and the relation to evening school really, really, we speak about different things depending where we grew up. Uh, and then um, we also decided to explore actually what evening school can be. And in some way it, uh, it, it started to relate in these talks that we had with all the artists more and more to this idea of a free time and where you actually can realize your own kind of, uh, collective but also individual uh, reformation or resistance or some form of, uh, let's say, again, dissent. And it's the only time that uh, maybe you have. Uh, and at the same time, also looking at the disappearance of leisure time, of free time, of this moment where you actually can come together, exchange, and possibly change or or keep status quo, like vota, vota valid, depending on the positions. Um, and through that, actually, we decided to form uh, the evening schools of gentle disarming. Uh, so it was really also thinking of this uh, uh, way of, again, coming together and looking for possible shared tools that we can take, harvest, and then maybe apply in some other contexts. So how do the evening schools of gentle disarming work? Are they the open schools or the closed evening schools? There are, uh, yeah, uh, there are 
open and semi-open, let's say, because we don't have enough, like, it's really a relation to infrastructure now again, and also uh, <laughs> funding, let's say. Uh, so we have a certain op- evening schools that are open for anyone to apply, but unfortunately there is a limited number of uh, places, and it's for free. This is also maybe, and then really public programs uh, that are also uh, for more people to join, uh, and they're also for free. The difference maybe between this closed, semi, or let's say semi-closed and uh, open schools, evening schools, uh, is the level of participation and also the level of engagement that is somehow asked in the participants. So in, in some preparations, we also uh, started to think, like, what is the position of a volunteer or an amateur uh, and um, within this free time? Uh, also, like, what they achieve through these evening schools. And then we realized, because it, we are in Belgium and there is an option of having a paid work as a volunteer, that we also should uh, reimburse all the participants that participate, because at the same time, they also position themselves as volunteers. So it's also thinking of, like, these economic models that... Uh, and it's interesting. Some people also refused because they really saw the knowledge uh, or the learnings they have actually is enough payment, and some actually just um, accept it. But I think that also differs from the different economic positions or that people have that participate. So um, yeah, for me personally, that was an interesting, like uh, like where you find the value. So has has this edition of Topos um, begun now? Has it actually started, or is it in the process of starting? <laughs> we had four starts, okay. at um, least five, maybe, uh, which makes it quite interesting. I think the the geopolitical reality of where the participants are coming from also didn't make it. We were not um, all arriving at the same time because, for instance, the two artists from Russia took a very long time to actually arrive in Antwerp. So we had several starts of recomposing the group. And I think with every evening school, we find ourselves in a slightly modified setting. So we restart so we revisit also the narration of the introduction of the topos, which is quite interesting because it has <laughs> become something different and something new. But we accepted this this space of accumulation. We also literally started accum- accumulating things in the space. Uh, the space looks horrible. I mean, no, it's not true. It just looks very messy. Uh, since we leave the traces of previous um, talks or attempts or it stays there. I don't really know what will be the introduction of tomorrow, but um, I, I, I believe that it that it's quite um, good to officially start every day. Yeah. I believe it is really helpful in this process. Yeah, but there is something for me also very humorous in it, but also very poetic of like restarting and restarting and starting again and again giving a frame and adding some new elements. So somehow this process of, uh, it links to also previous topoe too, like how to be together, like constantly reintroducing 
ourselves and always adding new things, but also of a failure of the very first one, <laughs> because it really feels like you're constantly reintroducing something that never happens. I don't know. It's, there is some absurdity in this uh, topic that uh, I, I find more and more intriguing, but I will see where it goes in the end. It's kind of, it intrigues me. Okay, well, one of the, one um, of the things that um, we've discussed previously before this uh, recording this conversation was creating a podcast out of the events in the topos and so perhaps I should explain to anybody listening that we've agreed that the participants will record something at regular intervals either a diary or audio verite or whatever and that we will not predetermine what form this takes or not try and guess where it's le where it's leading but rather when we get all of these in we will look at what form if any form these can take to form a different kind of podcast <laughs> we will restart the podcast also so this will be a podcast of many introductions so we're waiting with that. So that will happen during this month, during the month of June. That's correct, yes? So by the end of June, we will have something as yet to be determined in the form of audio clips, which we will then look at and see how these can be usefully, interestingly, illuminatingly put together. Again, embracing the possibility of failure, it may be that we look at these and can't imagine a form that they can take, and so nothing happens. But it may also be that we find that, that we find one or more forms that these take and get come up with a series of very interesting podcasts. So I'm waiting with great interest for this process because it's a kind of open-ended process that I'm in favor of that we've never actually managed to do before. So I'm happy that you've agreed to do this. All right, then. Well, let's leave it there for the moment. And we'll come back to this. I will hopefully talk to you again after after the topos. And then you can tell me how it actually went. And we'll see what we're going to do with the audio that arrives in an unpredictable manner. And we'll go through that as well. But thank you very much, um, Dushita and Helga, and I hope I didn't mangle your names too much. Yeah. Thank you. Now that you've heard the podcast, you can go to the website to find out more details, including references and links. The website's at meow.net. That's M-I-A-A-W dot net. See you there.